0: Okay, everybody, I just want to let you know that the movie that we are discussing today, Running with the Devil, written and directed by my guest, Jason Cabell, will be released this Friday in theaters and video on demand. So I urge everyone to listen to this episode. It's a spoiler-free discussion about the film, and then by all means, check out the movie. And I am really excited to welcome this guest on here. So let's go ahead and get started. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana, and I am privileged to be joined uh, all the way from Los Angeles, writer, director, Jason Cabell. How are you today, sir?
1: I'm good, Dana. Hey, thanks for having me on the show, man. I'm a big fan and I'm humbled and honored that uh, you had me on.
0: Thank you. Thanks for being on. I'm really excited to talk to you. Uh, uh, Just to bring the listeners a little bit up to speed, I got an opportunity to see an early preview of your latest movie, Running with the Devil. And Mm -hmm. I really want to talk to you today about this film because I absolutely loved it and I am excited to hear the story. I want to know where this all came from. I think the first question I want to ask you, Jason, is could you tell the listeners just a little bit about yourself? Where did you grow up? Where do you currently live? You know, you know what type of business you're in right now?
1: Sure, sure. Uh, well, I was born in Chicago and I grew up in Denver, uh, Colorado in the suburbs. I spent all my uh, summers in Chicago, uh, you know, going to movies and Cubs games with my cousins and uh, – you know, I, I joined the Navy. Um, I went to college at a little school in Colorado for a while, and I joined the Navy, and I uh, did it, Spent my entire adult life in the Navy, and then uh, I got into filmmaking. I moved up from San Diego to L.A., and I've lived all over L.A. Currently, I live in Los Feliz, which is a
0: cool little neighborhood
1: here, uh, right by Griffith Park, and
0: yeah. What did you do in the Navy?
1: Oh, I was a SEAL. I was a Navy SEAL for a little over 20 years. So that's
0: incredible. So I I guess the the first question I have is, you know, how do you come, how do you go from being a Navy SEAL to being a filmmaker? Like, how does that transition happen?
1: (laughs) Well, I I mean, that's a crazy transition because I think, you know, since I was a late teenager, you know, till my, uh, you know, late 30s, early 40s, that's what I did. And I went around the world and I was in combat, you know, I went to over a hundred countries and, You know, that all ends at some point and you have to reinvent yourself. So uh I had some friends that were in show business and I did a stunt for them, a helicopter stunt, and then I did a like a spec commercial for Ford. It was skydiving that never went anywhere. And the guy said, Hey, you look real good on camera, you speak well, all this stuff. He said, Why don't you start taking some acting classes and uh we so I hosted three reality show pilots that never got picked up, but I kinda went, Wow, this is interesting. It's you know, it's something I think I could do. So I got into background work, I got somebody picked me up as a manager and an agent. And I was in like, a background actor on like Modern Family, you know, that big wedding event, you, you could see me standing next to some of the big actors in that. And, you know, and then I got into some speaking roles and into SAG. And, you know, I helped this guy produce a movie and I started writing and I figured I could do it. So I just kept staying on set and staying on set and it just kind of snowballed from there.
0: So you got, you got a little bit into the acting. You, got a, you mm-hmm. got a feel for that. Where's the idea that you want to make your own movies? I mean, where, where does that come from?
1: Well, you know, like I said, I so I did this indie action movie. I produced it with this guy, and I kind of saw how things went, and the more and more I was on set, I, I started realizing, you know, I always knew I could write because you do a lot of writing in the Navy. I mean, that's something a lot of people don't understand is like when you start getting into leadership roles, all you do is write. You have to write to get your guys promoted. You have to write to explain, you know, reports where you are and what you're doing and how you're doing certain things. So that, you know. Um, I noticed how many scripts were just terrible, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then even and, but then I started reading all the really good ones, you know, and I read ones that all my favorite movies and TV shows and why they won awards and why they did extremely well. And I started I, I just noticed the beat like the syncopation that they had. And so I wrote a script and then i made this you know all of a sudden i got it out to a couple of actors and they liked it and i moved up to la and i raised a hundred thousand dollars and i made a, a feature film that got distributed and won some awards uh, in 10 days and everybody kept telling me i couldn't do it and that's like kind of my thing you know nobody told me i could be a seal and i could do that and i did it you know, nobody said I could do anything in Hollywood, but I'm like, well, there's a Hollywood, right? There are people writing and directing and making movies. So why can't I be one of them? So then all that $100,000 movies was a springboard to the next one and the next one. And then it just kind of went like that.
0: Talking about the, the, the $100,000 movie for a moment. Yes. What, what's the name of it? Is it available? Can you tell the yes. listeners a little bit about the synopsis of the of the film?
1: Sure. Yeah, it's, it's called Smoke-Filled Lungs and uh, it has Frankie Faison and Orlando Brown in it and I'm in it as well. And uh, it's about a veteran who gets hooked on prescription drugs and starts selling them to like motorcycle gangs and him and uh, his nephews getting in trouble at school and they go on this road trip uh, to go see like the wise grandpa and kind of solve their problems and fix their lives. So um, yeah, it did pretty well and it's still doing okay.
0: What lessons did you learn from that first time making a movie?
1: Well, well, I'll tell you, man, at $100,000 in 10 days, I mean, you're going to do about, I co-directed it, I wrote it, I acted in it, and every other thing. I ran craft services, I I was a boom mic operator, a gaffer. So, I mean, we had a very small crew, but I set out to do it, and we even fired the entire crew day two and replaced them, and we still filmed the movie in ten days. Yeah, that's a ninety, I think ninety four minute film. You know.
0: So the movie comes out, it gets it gets released, it gets picked mm-hmm. up, it's distributed, it's still available. People can watch it today if they yeah, want.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. iTunes, Amazon, those places. Yeah.
0: So when that, when the, you know, for the lack of a better term, when the dust settles on that, and you know, you've made the film, it's been distributed. What are you doing? Like, what's happening with you? I mean, did you immediately jump into this next project that we're going to be talking about or or you, did you see other opportunities present themselves? I mean, what what happens after you've successfully made this first $100,000 film?
1: Well, you know, I the friend of mine that helped me uh, distribute the movie and got me the distribution deal, she makes a lot of TV movies and like Marvista movies for sci-fi channel. So she said, hey, I've got a perfect project. Would you produce it with me? So I wrote the beginning of it. I wrote, you know, and, and I brought a bunch of assets and I produced the movie with her. And that was, I think it was about $7 million TV movie for, and it was a great film. And, you know, it's doing okay. You can see it on Sci-Fi Channel. And so she, you know, I did that with her. And in the meantime, I was shopping around the script for Running With the Devil. And uh, when I finished that one, I was lucky enough to get Running With the Devil picked up for production.
0: So let's talk about Running With the Devil. Okay. Okay. This is, this is a hundred percent through and throughout an original story that you came up with. Where does the inspiration for this story come from?
1: Oh, wow. Well, you know, I was being a seal. I was exposed to a lot of different stuff and I did train and work with the DEA and you listen to guys and you know, everyone wants to tell the Escobar story, the El Chapo story or the big Kingpin story because it's fun and sexy and cool. But the reality is we've spent trillions of dollars on the war on drugs and you can go to any high school in america and get cocaine if you want and that's the truth you can go to any party so it's like wait we're doing all this stuff we're catching el chapo why is what has it done to put a dent in the drugs? so i wanted to tell the story from the more or less the point of view of the cocaine from the plants in the you know jungles and fields in Colombia, all the way to a party in canada and then all the lives that are affected along the way and the people that are attached to it and and but those little rat lines if you will that are happening it's it's a lot more decentralized than people think and it may be a big a bust to put el chapo or those guys on tv with hundreds of kilos and millions of dollars but it's not really doing anything
0: i've got a kind of an interesting question that sort of just popped into my mind here when you when you're getting ready to write this script what's the very first thing you write What's the fir- do you write the first scene? Do you write an outline? Do you create a first character? I'm really curious like what's the very first thing you put pen to paper on?
1: Well, I'm super unorthodox and I know a lot of people like to outline stuff and I think I outline it in my head. <laughs> and you know, this script was very unique because Nobody had a name. It's the man, the cook, the woman, the wife, the this, the that, and, you know, the snitch. And uh, nobody has a name. And I wanted to keep it like that. But I, um, you know, and I'm writing another one right now that I started last week. And uh, I just finished another one that we're going in production in January on. But I'm super unorthodox. But I just let it go in my head for a while. And then I, I have notes. I have notes in my phone. I have notes on legal pads. I have notes on whiteboards. And it looks like totally disconnected. (laughs) If anyone saw all that stuff, they would think I was mad, but (laughs) then it all kind of comes together and boom, all of a sudden I'm writing, you know, you're 30 pages into it and you kind of go with the traditions of, you know, inciting incident, act breaks, and, and it all kind of happens naturally for me
0: anyway. So how long did it take you to write the script start to finish?
1: Well, so in, it was Christmas, 2014. And I wrote this and smoke filled lungs. And this I was a big fan of All Is Lost and Castaway. And I wrote a forty page script with almost no dialogue. And so I wrote that over Christmas. But then I took it to a couple of the production companies I had connections with, and they loved the script. But they needed it to be more commercial, and they said you got to develop these characters and add dialogue. So over the course of six months or so, I added the. You know, it, it ended up I think about one hundred and twelve pages, but. Excuse me, kind of the through story and um, all the you know connecting tissue to make it the movie that it is today.
0: When writing a script, I think the, the the standard rule of thumb is you know one one page equals one minute of film. Sure. And you mentioned that you know this was this wasn't ninety pages that you wrote. So when you were writing this, how many minutes per page were you envisioning before you flesh well, out all the characters?
1: Well, you see, here's the thing that a lot of people don't understand. I could write on the page the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor, period. Yeah. <laughs> how, how long is that going to take? Yeah. That's more than a minute, right Dana? I mean, down, so, down. so when you're writing action and things, it it's more or less correct, but it's not, I mean, and, and my stuff's never been dialogue heavy. It is, and it's enough to tell the story, but my goal as a storyteller and a writer director is way more visual and I, I just keep it to a minimum. And I think a lot of people, do the opposite and they just they have to explain everything between the characters but i would encourage people to spin that out a lot and tell a more visual story so that's um cool. but yeah a minute a page is, is it, <laughs> that's a tough thing but it does kind of work out more or less but like i said if you use the the japanese bomb pearl harbor period <laughs> you tell <laughs> me how long does that take 10 minutes 20 you know who knows
0: no you it reminds me of uh when I saw some type doc documentary about uh, of all movies, star Wars, episode three, mm-hmm. revenge of the Sith. And, you know, Lucas wrote in the script at the end, when Anakin and Obi-Wan have a fight, he literally just put, they fight. And mm-hmm. that scene goes no. on for 30 minutes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, see, so there you go, yeah. you know, and that's, so you have to factor that in. And when they read it, he got it and He said, look, man, if you were a little longer in the tooth and they, they may have done it, but You know, I think that was Tom Hanks and Robert Redford that did those other and I'm not quite there yet, but I'm getting there, you know, so. um, but I, I will eventually I mean, I will do this again and have a almost no dialogue movie. That's my goal and get it to 100 plus minutes.
0: So you've got to finish script. What's the very first thing you do, Jason? Like what what's the first step to get this project greenlit? Like what do you have to do?
1: Well, I, first thing I do is go have a couple of beers. Or, sure. you know, do something. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, well, I mean, uh, it, you just, you have to build these connections and relationships. And honestly, I mean, I've had an, a really good agents and stuff, but you still have to do all your own work. And you know, it's kind of like that. Don't call us. We'll call you when you need it. And you're ready for it. You will get an agent. You will get a manager. You will get all that stuff, but I have a really good attorney as well. So I just got the script out to the right places and it started getting some good coverage. And then you have to you want to get it to actors. And, you know, I got it to a good production company because what I was facing the whole time, Dan, is, wow, we love the script. Who do you see directing? (laughs) I see me directing. (laughs) So. That got a lot, and they said, "Well, that's never going to happen." And you're, you know, as as a filmmaker, you have to stand your ground. Now, do you want the movie made? But I, I really, this was my vision as a writer director, and I may have stalled it getting made for a year or so, but it got made, and I, it got made with an amazing cast, and uh, you know, so that's another thing out there. You have to stand your ground if you know how good your thing, but your script has to be extremely good, and it has, you have to be getting the feedback from professionals, not just your mom and, you know, people that like you telling you how good it is, but industry professionals. And if you think you have something and you're capable you know, and you are a writer director, you have to hold on to that vision.
0: Let's talk about the cast for a moment. Let's talk about casting. Who's the first name to get attached? And and does having that name attached bring on or open the door to more names getting attached? Like, how does that process work?
1: Well, sure. Well, we sent out offers to all of them at the same time. And, you know, there are some no's and but it, it it just seemed to work out perfectly. So we sent the offer to Nick Cage to play the cook, which is It's arguably the lead, you know, Leslie Bibb's character, the agent in charge is also so and so is the man. And this is the way I write. So there's a bunch of co-leads. So we sent it to Nick and he responded extremely well to it. And I remember it clearly because it was the day after the mass shooting in um, Las Vegas and Nick lives in Vegas. So I had to drive out there to meet with them. You know, I, I remember coming over the hill And I thought we were going to reschedule, but we didn't and how eerie and strange Vegas felt having been in war zones, you know, and, and that, that morning the drapes were still flopping out the window at the hotel and I drove through Vegas just kind of stunned, but I got there and it was so exciting to be with Nick and we stayed for, you know, two hours. He was super excited about the script and. Uh, we, he had some brilliant notes on the character and he was really into it. And and again, it shows in all their performances, you know, they, they really brought it. And then, uh, you know, I came back and the next day I met with Lawrence and his camp and all of a sudden we have a movie and Lawrence Fishburne (laughs) and Nick Cage, I mean, come on. And then the rest of that week, I think I met with Peter Focinelli and Clifton Collins Jr. And, um, then we, we were off to the races.
0: So I have to ask you: Was there multiple sort of surreal moments when you're meeting Nicolas Cage, you're meeting Lawrence Fishburne, you're meeting Peter Facinelli, Clifton Collins? I mean, these are all incredibly recognizable people, and, and 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 let's say it, really big movie stars. Like, what's going through your mind the first time you're meeting with these people?
1: Well, I mean, they're all professionals, you know, and and I think I was groomed for that having been a SEAL, because I've met the King of Jordan. I've met some, you know, some big, and so I'm used to that. I've done security details for other, you know, VIPs and stuff. But, uh, no, I I mean, I I was starstruck a little bit, but they are so professional and so, I mean, Lawrence and I are friends. I'm friends with all of those guys now, and I'm putting a lot of them in my next film. And, uh, you know, but it it was, I was just super humbled and, you know, that they responded to my material the way they did, you know?
0: That's awesome. You've got a cast attached. Are you fully funded by this point?
1: Yes. That's so, I mean, the cast, it's kind of like there's a chicken and an egg and there's a whole bunch of things the way it goes, but they test the foreign sales based on the script and the potential cast. And once you lock the cast in, uh, it gets green lit and then the funding comes and you start pre-production and, you know, off you go.
0: Can you talk just a little bit about foreign sales for maybe the listeners that don't know sort of the importance of of the foreign sales market?
1: Sure, sure. Well, I mean, uh, in this market, except for those, you know, uh, pillar 15 movies a year that the studios are putting out or whatever it is, no one banks on domestic release on indie movies. They bank on the foreign release. So there's 43 to 50 territories, depending on who you talk to. And some of them get combined. So you go to three or four foreign sales agents and there's takes and asks, and you try to get a number for three of them for the lowest, you know, what are the lowest estimates you're going to get for the movie with this cast, with this script? Do they like the story? And then you kind of build the budget around that because, most movies get greenlit based on foreign sales, not domestic. Saying, "Well, how many theaters is it going in in the U.S.?" Unless it's one of those pillar movies. Now, this movie's going to come out in maybe a hundred theaters in you know day and date VOD, but it'll still do okay. So, I noticed this morning the theaters it was playing in New York, and it's going to be in several here and a couple other cities. But that's the meat of the market, Dan. I mean, ninety-six or seven percent of movies. Come out like this.
0: Can you give the listeners a very, you know, very brief plot of the movie? You know who who's who, and and you know what's with that movie. Obviously, keeping it very spoiler free. The movie comes out in a couple days. You know, we want the listeners definitely want the listeners to check that out. So just a little basic plot of the film.
1: Okay. Well, um, so you have Barry Pepper, who's the boss, and you have Nicolas Cage, who is the cook, and he's hiding in plain sight. He runs a little Italian restaurant in Seattle. You have Cole Hauser, who's the executioner, who is Barry Pepper's you know, strong. So Barry Pepper's up in Canada, and he runs the whole West Coast supply chain. A load gets hijacked in Mexico. And then there's someone along the supply chain that is screwing it up and recutting it and killing people and doing some bad stuff. And so the boss says, hey, you know, just like if you were selling anything, you know, you need this is your territory, you go fix it, you fix the supply chain. So I I kind of that was the whole moral of the story. These guys don't think they're doing anything wrong. This is like an insurance salesman or, a you know, a tire salesman or pick the commodity and something's wrong with the supply chain. So he goes all the way to the source, which is the is uh, the forests of Columbia and Clifton Collins and his wife, Natalia Reyes, are they are picking with their family and their kids are picking the cocoa leaves off the off the uh the plants in their the first level of processing. And sadly enough, when that's the purest it's ever been, they're only making, you know, a thousand, twelve to fifteen hundred dollars a kilo. And then as it moves and it gets stepped on and it gets more processed, the price just goes up. The more international borders it crosses. So they Nick and uh, Cole go to all the way to the source and follow it all the way to the nightclub yeah where the boss is. And all the things that happen along the way. And, and then the cook is looking hard to see who's screwing up his stuff. I hope I didn't give too much away. No, no, yeah. <laughs> no. I
0: Listen, I've seen the film and I can tell you, no, that's a perfect, perfect description for, for, I think, to get people excited to watch the movie. You know, you just mentioned all these different locations. So I've got two questions for you. The first one is, can you talk a little bit about the shooting locations? And then while well, shooting on location, what were some of the, the biggest struggles that you had to overcome?
1: Well, sure. I mean, so we were in New Mexico, Arizona and Columbia. And with this type of cast and the way I write, you know, when you get into the day out of days, it's not like, hey, I need this actor for 60 days, 30 days. I think the most we had an actor was like 18 days. And so you get into a puzzle, though, with all of their schedules and then going from New Mexico to Columbia and then to Arizona, you know, we went from this was the high altitude movie too. Uh, I mean, we started in New Mexico at 5,000 feet and we shot a good portion of the movie at over 11,000 feet. And then we went to Bogota, which starts at 8,500 feet and we shot a good portion at way above that up in the hills, you know, 10, 12,000 feet. So, I mean, we were gasping for air and those, the, you know, the crew, they were tough, man, pushing those cards through the snow. And rain and mud and I mean that's the the logistics and then the traffic in Bogota makes LA traffic look like Montana or something you know
0: so. I'm very curious about that Jason like who handles the logistics of getting the crew the cast and crew to all these different like it can't be the job of just one person.
1: Oh no I mean and we had a 300 person crew and then the Teamsters man they were so amazing and I, I love all those guys and I'm actually trying to get them all the same crew on my next movie because we're gonna shoot a bunch of it in New Mexico again but that I mean it takes it takes a village every single person has to know and do their job and you all that mission planning uh, and weather and all that stuff and same with the crews in Colombia I mean we came in right behind um, Peter Berg and, and mile 22 and we got a lot of their same crew. So they were pretty seasoned and ready to go. And, you know, uh, you can't make a movie with just the camera department and the actors and there, there, those are super important, but everything else, those admin. And then, you know, I had a guy named Chris Wynn and shave RJ and we just flew around getting everything ready. And, you know, then all the production company in Columbia and the production, you know, in New Mexico. But you have to drive that logistic train because if trucks are showing up late or, you know, getting flat tires or things like that, um, you can delay things for hours and hours. We were up in the snow, we were in the mud, we were in the rain, and they never missed it. They were always set up early. They always had, and you've got, you know, it's five degrees out, you got to get the trailers heated up and ready to go. And everything's got to be ready for hair and makeup. And you know, it's just, If it's not going right, it can be a snowball effect. But that's where I think also my experience uh, being in the Navy and the combat deployments I did helped with that task organization and the ability to, you know, to build departments with good, capable people. And then, you know, we all work together as a team. I mean, it was such a team effort. That's why funny to me as the writer director to be standing up and taking the credit for the job that. Three hundred people did, you sure. know, two hundred fifty to three hundred people.
0: You know, when I was watching the movie, there's there's a certain level of authenticity to a lot of the scenes, and I'm wondering. I I, I read about having on-set advisors. You're you you are a Navy SEAL, so you can bring. Uh, so much to the level of authenticity when it comes to the the weapons that are being used, the way the troops are being utilized, the helicopter shots, everything. Like, did you bring, you didn't have an onset advisor. You were your own onset advisor. Is that a safe assumption to make?
1: Well, uh, 100%, Dana. I was. And I mean, that my connections with the Colombian government got us the, we got a real Blackhawk helicopter for the day. And then, you know, I went to Arizona to work with all my good buddies at uh, Skydive Phoenix. And they, you know, they, I... Flown with those guys and jumped with them all over the world. So they got—I mean, we had a guy jump an RE movie camera to film what we were doing, and there's no margin for error there. That's a gigantic camera, and there's not many people in the world that can do that. And so we have some really cool footage from a lot of that stuff. But I, you know, as far as the weapons handling, you're exactly right. And what I wanted to see is the director. I was. My own tech advisor on the spot.
0: another two- part question here. so you know, what was the t- total number of days the 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 shoot took? and are there any interesting like really interesting stories that you can share uh, you know something something incredible that happened, something unforeseeable that happened? what really interesting happened while filming this movie?
1: okay, what was the fir- I'm sorry, what was the first first part, part of the first
0: part of that okay. was how what was the total number of days t- okay. to shoot?
1: got gotcha. you. Okay, so it was uh it was 30 to 34 days give or take with the, you know, sex some of the second unit stuff. So we moved really fast and I mean every single day there was something that happened. I mean, with this from the skydiving and uh some of the airplane work and then having that that helicopter and look, the performances from Nick and Lawrence, I mean, there every single day I was just amazed on set. There, I mean, I had Adam Goldberg and Nick and Lawrence in a car together (laughs) for an afternoon and it was insane and you know some of the scenes with Lawrence and Adam Goldberg and Leslie Bibb and I mean it's uh you know we were on a set a big set in um Columbia it was the the checkpoint set and I'm standing there with Nick and Cole Hauser and Peter Facinelli, and Peter goes, man, I I did Twilight movies, and this is the biggest set I've ever seen. (laughs) And I was like, wow, man. So we had those. I mean, this movie's big. There were some big set pieces. And I think, you know, we did the best we could with the budget we had, and we made it look as big as possible. So, uh, you know, and then tromping through the mud with Clifton Collins all around Columbia, you know, up in the forest. Really close to where they really do make and process the the cocaine. I mean, we set up a little farm like right over the hill from a a pretty real one. So,
0: Well, that's if that's the case, do you have to have a security detail when you're in Columbia So someone to look out for the crew?
1: Oh, for sure. And we did. But I got to tell you, I mean, <laughs> New Mexico was pretty dangerous as well. I mean, you know, it's uh, Columbia wasn't bad at all. I mean, we stayed in a really nice area down there and you, you always have security and, y- you know, you have to. But we had really good production security in both places.
0: I, I want to just you, you said, you know, you've got another project you're getting ready to get in, get into production in January. And you mentioned that you want to use as much of the same crew as, as you have with this film and I'm curious if you could talk just a little bit about, you know, who, who, who you brought on as cinematographer, editors, producers. I mean, uh, how does that process work? I mean, are you looking at a number of different people or is the first person you ask you want? Are you getting the first person you're asking for?
1: Yeah, I mean, Corey Giriak and I, he was the DP and he's super great. And I mean, we just we spent some time together uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact, and he's a brilliant uh, DP and he came very so I had this scene, this there's a montage scene with Lawrence in the movie with these working girls. And I explained it to him and I had talked to a lot of DPs when I was interviewing him. And I said, Hey, this is what it's in my head and how I want to do it. And they said, Well, at this budget level, it's gonna be hard. And then I sat I had breakfast with Corey and he said, Hey, I'm over at Universal all afternoon doing some color. He said, I'm gonna do a camera test and I'll send you what you're telling me so that night he sent me a sample of exactly what was in my head and I said you're hired (laughs) and him and I got along like peas and carrots and I mean with his experience carried it as well and I I mean it was he he captured what was in my head 100%
0: awesome that's awesome you wrapped up production on the on the shoot And it's time to get into post-production. I'm wondering, again, multiple questions. I'm going to fire at you here real quick. You know, how long is post-production? How involved are you on the editing side of things? And at some point, we have to talk about the music because, uh, as I've mentioned to a couple friends of mine, the movie opens up with... One of the greatest, you know, music intro songs of all time by low fidelity all-stars. So I know I just threw a lot of questions at you. So I'll, I'll, I'll reel it back and just say, you know, how involved do you get in post-production and how long does that take?
1: Uh, hugely involved. And I mean, it takes, you know, four to six months. It depends on different factors, but, uh, I mean, we had really good DIT guys that were lining stuff up coming out and. Uh, we had a good, we had a good lineup fairly quickly and the movie was still like two hours and 30 minutes, but we just kept, you know, molding it and molding it. So that all happened fairly quickly. And then, you know, before you lock picture, you're trying to get everything, get the sound, get that music cleared. And I had a really good, uh, music supervisor, Andrea von Forrester, and she worked around the clock to get the music cleared and to get the, the right lineup that we needed. And then Reinhold Heil did the, the, um, the score, which he said cloud atlas and some other really good television shows and he was wonderful to work with. And I hope to work with him again. Um, so that's, you know, I'm, as far as also being visual, but like you said, I also tell the story with music and I'm already starting to clear songs for the next movie. So I just, that's all I do is before I've even shot it, I have the scene in mind and I'm trying to put music to it where it's appropriate.
0: Was there some music you had in mind that just for whatever reason you weren't able to get cleared?
1: Yeah, well, we had, you know, I mean, you have a budget and I went big and there was in that free fall scene in the middle. We had Steely Dan and it worked so good. It was meant to be. But, you know, Steely Dan's a pretty expensive song at this budget level. And like you said, the low fidelity all stars, when that came to me uh, and I was I drive back and forth to San Diego because my son lives down there. And I listened to satellite radio and I'm always flipping around the channels. And when that came on, I said, I called post right away and I said, audition this for me. And it it worked so well. We dug in on that. So it was like, all right, well, we're exceeding the budget. So we had to trim back a couple of songs, but we found a good replacement for Steely Dan. But, you know, uh, I mean, that's one of the things on the next movie that I'm already pushing for is a bigger music budget, because you pay all these actors. You know, a certain fee. And in my movies, as, as it's happening, the music is also a character, just like yeah. the actor. So I have a pretty good music budget uh, for the next one. And so, I mean, it's super important to me. And a lot of people have asked about the Van Halen song and why aren't you doing that? We uh, tried it. And again, it's super, super expensive and it, it just didn't quite
0: fit. That brings up a very interesting question the title of the movie. Mm hmm. Where do you come up with the title of the movie?
1: Well, you know, I, I was just, uh, we, it, we went through several tests and we had three or four titles. And again, the devil is the cocaine and just running with the devil. And I, I really didn't have the song in mind or I, I barely remembered it. But then people, you know, that's a big Van Halen song. But, you know, as the tests kept going and everything, the, the title stuck. And um, I think it's great. You yeah.
0: know, I mean, it, it works. I agree. When the movie's finished when it's locked and you watch it, how on par is it in your mind with the original screenplay that you wrote?
1: It's pretty much, it's, it's there. I mean, those original 40 pages, it's there uh, and it's the expansion, but you know, there's all kinds of compromises with what you get on the day. And, and and there were some things that happened that I didn't expect to happen that were like, wow, you know, and, and uh, it just, it, what ends up staying, I, I think it's pretty close, you know, and you always want, I mean, I would want another 20 minutes, <laughs> but I think it's about perfect. Yeah, it's pretty close to being perfect.
0: Talk to me a little bit about distribution. Like I said, we're we're two days away from this movie hitting <laughs> VOD and the theatrical release. How quickly after your blocked picture are you in the distribution model? Well, you're
1: in it. I mean, you're in it when you're finishing post. Yeah. You're in it when you, when, as soon as the movie's green lit, you're in it and we were sending back snippets and then, you know, they went to Cannes. We finished like the first week of May and we sent snippets to Cannes like a week later so that they could start selling it. But they started selling it in the fall. You know, as soon as we had the cast lock, they started selling it, um, at AFM in November of 2017. And then they just hit that circuit Berlin and Toronto, because besides all these festivals, they're also sales markets. So your foreign sales guys start selling the movie as soon as it's a go.
0: And how involved are you in that? Like, how are you flying to Toronto? Are you I mean, how much traveling are you doing as the director of the filming? Because I imagine, you know, you've got to be talking to some people, you've got to be (laughs) telling them what's going on.
1: Sure. No, and I do. And I mean, I trust the sales guys and I, I did stuff at AFM. I didn't go to Toronto or any of the festivals because we were just so busy cutting the movie. You know, it, it, there, there is some give and take there. And uh, like just like now, I mean, we're promoting the movie because it's about to come out. So, but no, they handle a lot of that stuff unless it's it's screening and competition uh, or something like that. If it's sales screenings, then, you, you know, I did go to the AFM screening and What happens at these screenings, Dana, are that if you're a foreign sales rep, you're trying to watch 10, 12 movies a day. So you go in and sit down for 15, 20 minutes and go, "Okay, sounds good. The color's good. These actors are really in it. We'll buy it or we won't buy it next. Well, for this screening, it was at like one thirty on a Sunday (laughs) during the festival. And we had a big theater in Santa Monica. And I'm going, is anybody going to show up? Well, it's right before it started. The theater sold out. I mean it packed there wasn't an empty seat. And so but you expect that after 15 people are going to start filing out and I kept looking back as the movie was being played and nobody left. Not one person got up and left and then they all talked to me in the lobby after the movie and that's when I said, "Man, I think we have something here and you know, the sales have been pretty good."
0: Do you have you done a cast and crew screening? I mean does how does people like like Nick and Lawrence and Cole and all them I mean, when do they get to see the film?
1: Well, you know, privately, I have with a couple of them, uh, but on September 18th, I believe, which is the Wednesday before it comes out on Friday the 20th, we're having a screening at um, the WJ Theater in Beverly Hills. And that will be, you know, that's the red carpet, though, and the hype and the celebrities. But that is mostly cast and crew and distribution and all that. And then, you know so that's when the they'll everybody will get to see it but privately i've i've watched it with a few of them
0: so this is exciting we are again just a couple days away from the release of this film and i'm again thrilled that you had an opportunity to talk to me a little bit about the movie and I'm, I'm going to have you back, Jason, because I want to, yes, I, I definitely want to know more about you as, you know, I want to know what, you know, what, what makes you tick as far as the movies that inspired you. And, and we're going to have that conversation, but I do have a couple more questions before we wrap things up today. Yes, sir. You know, you've been hinting at, at this next project you've got. So the question is, you know, obviously the, the, the question I had written down is what's next for you. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit more? I mean, I, I know it's, kind of closely under wraps. Can you talk a little bit more about this project that you're getting ready to start in January?
1: Sure. I mean, the, the plot is under wraps, but the title is Opioid Nation. So uh, we're going to film in China, Chicago, and New Mexico. And uh, we started casting. We have a very good casting director and she's working really hard on it. Um, Veronica Collins Rooney. So we're, you know, we're moving forward with all that stuff and we haven't, we don't have anybody officially attached yet, but we should in the next few weeks. And um, we're starting prep already.
0: That's an interesting set of shooting locations you just mentioned. Like (laughs) now does that, does that make like when you look at what you did with running with the devil with those shooting locations, now you're, I mean, this is global you're doing with this next project? I mean, Mm -hmm. is there, I I don't, you don't strike me as the type of person who gets anxious about anything, but is there a certain level of, okay, this is a, this is even bigger as far as the endeavor you're about to get into. And is it, it it must be exciting.
1: Oh, a hundred percent exciting. And, It is way bigger. And it it is everything you just said on a global scale. And the stakes are going to be a lot higher for sure. And the travel and logistics and everything else. And we're considering changing venues right now from China to Bangkok for various reasons. I mean, because we were going to shoot in Hong Kong and we still might. So, but you have to consider those political climates and everything else where where you're going so but no i'm super excited about this one and and it is going to be on a much larger scale and we're going to have a theatrical release and it's going to be a good movie
0: now i just have one more question before we wrap this up i've seen the movie twice now and i want to continue to to stress to the listeners that i really love this film i love the characters uh without getting into any kind of spoilers i have to ask you is there more to this story to be told? Is there more? I mean, what, can you envision expanding upon this universe that you've created with Running with the Devil?
1: Oh, sure. I mean, and we did film several endings and we've talked about it, but there are enough of the characters left open-ended. And when you get there and see it, you know, that, that we could definitely do a sequel for sure.
0: That's excellent. All right. Well, Jason, I'm again, thrilled that you were able to take some time out of your incredibly busy schedule to talk to me about this film. Like I said, I'm very much looking forward to having you back on to, you know, get into even further details about this movie. So let's, let's plan on doing a couple follow-up episodes. I would be, I'd be delighted if you could do that.
1: My pleasure, Dana. Hey, thanks for having me, man. I'm a big fan of the show and, uh, I'm looking forward to being back on again.
0: I appreciate that. So if you want to follow the show on Twitter, it's at Dana Buckler show. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Dana Buckler. If you want to follow us on Instagram, it's at the Dana Buckler show. And if you want to email the show with questions or comments, even if you have some questions to Jay for Jason, I'll be happy to pass them along. You can do so at the Dana Buckler show at gmail.com. So Jason, thank you again. Thank you. And my name is Dana Buckler and thank you so much for listening.